15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on this, the 233rd edition of the Space Nuts podcast. My name is Andrew Dunkley and with me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Ta-da. Yes, here I am and I can see that I can see the trace of my voice going, so I know I'm here. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, now... <laughs> Yes, uh, and I should mention that uh, there will not be a video edition this week due to technical difficulties. I'll, I'll use the, the standard um, industry uh, phraseology to, to cover us on that one. Um, in short, we, we couldn't connect on the, um, the interface with the video recorder, and so we had to drop it. Not for want of trying, though, Fred, I must no, say. We certainly tried. <laughs> yeah, we did. Never yeah. mind. That's all but, right. That's all right. We're, we've gone back to old reliable, uh, and and it is called um, uh, uh, analog tape. No, we didn't go back that far, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> here we are. Now, uh, how you been, Fred? By the way, it's oh, been, fine, it, it, it's really really busy this time of year. In my other um, uh, role as a, as a uh, an employee of the Salvation Army, it's it's the busiest time of year for us because we're we're trying to get all sorts of things together to help people out so that they can have a Christmas. Um, we distributed uh, over uh, over a hundred um, uh, hampers and and boxes of toys last week to people who wouldn't have had anything this Christmas. So that that was good. And um, this year has been amazing because with COVID-19, you'd think it would slow everything down because we can't do things that we'd normally do to, to collect toys and money. And people have just come out of the woodwork to help. It's just been fantastic. It's just uh, it's just a wonderful thing to see that, that people are actually going out of their way to assist uh, with, with people in need. So, uh, yeah, we've been able to do quite a bit this year that we, we didn't think we'd get done so it's been um yeah all hands on deck but uh we've um we've been able to help uh, at least 100 families which is terrific sounds good so yes it does um now we have got a fair bit to cover today uh we're also going to be adding some uh patreon uh materials some bonus material for our patrons we'll tell you about that later uh, but on this edition, we're going to talk about the Great Conjunction, uh, which um, you know happens every so often. But this one, this particular conjunction, hasn't been seen for many a long time, and we're talking hundreds of years. Uh, it also looks like there's some kind of link between radio bursts and the flares of cool stars. We call those stars Fonzie stars. And we've got some uh, questions to answer from Alex and Bellingen about neutron stars. Zoe uh, wants to know about Santa and um, you know, the, the, the time dilation uh, advantages that he enjoys. Uh, and Travis is uh, still trying to get his head around black holes, why they have differing ma uh, mass, because they're a singularity. How could it be? That is a good question. I think we've been there before, but it's worth reinvestigating. So we're going to do all of that today on this edition of Space Nuts. But first, Fred, let's talk about the Great Conjunction. They're calling it the Great Conjunction, and it will be great, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So a, a Great Conjunction um, is defined as being the uh, a conjunction of the two great planets, uh, Jupiter and Saturn. And typically there's 
one of those every 20 years where they come together in the sky. Of course, they're not coming together in reality because Saturn's, uh, you know, well, well, well over one and a half times further away in the solar system than Jupiter is, but they appear to come together in the sky. Um, so that is the kind of definition of a conjunction, but it turns out that this one is an exceptionally unusual one because they will be one-tenth of a degree apart. And that is almost on the limit where, um, unless your eyes are pretty good, you might see them as just one bright star. Depends on your eyesight. Now, the last time this happened, Andrew, was on the 16th of July, 1623, which I don't remember directly, but it was in the early history of the telescope. The telescope appeared in the historical record in 1608. However, there is an issue with that because that particular conjunction, probably nobody saw because they were very close to the sun. Um, so they would not really be obvious in the night sky, uh, too close to the sun. And so in order to see one that would, or to, to recognize one that would have been seen by most people, you've got to go back a bit yeah. further to the 4th of March, 1226. So almost, almost 800 years ago, um, they would have been seen together in the sky at this sort of distance, about a tenth of a degree. So a tenth of a degree is a fifth of the diameter of the moon. That just puts it in perspective. Um, yep. And it happens uh, by a curious coincidence on the on the solstice, the summer solstice for us, the winter solstice for the folk in the Northern Hemisphere, the 21st of December. So uh, it's a really quite a phenomenal um, astronomical event. And if you happen to be listening to this podcast after the 21st of December, you've missed it. Actually, that's not Damn. quite, it's not quite true because the, the, you know, planets don't whiz through the sky at breakneck speed. They're actually relatively sedate in their movement through the sky. And so even now, Jupiter and Saturn, what are we um, not quite a week ahead of this? Jupiter and Saturn are very close. Um, it, 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 and it'll be the same for a week afterwards. They'll be noticeably closer than they normally are. Jupiter, of course, the brighter one, Saturn, the fainter one. Um, if people are listening to this, though, uh, kind of uh, before the, the 17th of December, um, then it's worth a look because the crescent moon will be very nearby uh, in the evening sky. You'll see the crescent moon and the two close planets, which should look lovely. The... Uh, the problem we've got here uh, in coastal New South Wales is that we've got solid cloud. Uh, and I'm yep. not even sure that we're going to see the conjunction itself next week because the forecast is so bad. But um, I'm sure people who, who can you know get a good view of the sky, they should go out after sunset, wait for the sky to get dark, and you will see the two planets in the western evening sky. Will it be something that, people will be able to photograph because I, I've already seen a lot of uh, photographs on social media. Uh, people have been uh, getting some snapshots of the planets already. And obviously some people have got some good gear to be able to do that. Uh, but will you, do you need a telescope or binoculars or something like that? Yeah, it would help if you've got a, probably a pair of binoculars that you could stick your 
your smartphone on the back of. Um, but um, some people have yeah just been using ordinary smartphones and getting really quite nice pictures. The the two planets don't show up very very brightly. What's a really interesting possibility because they're so close uh, on the twenty first. Anybody with who's set up with a small telescope and the wherewithal to photograph things should be able to get both the planets in the same field of view. So you'll see both Saturn and Jupiter along with their brighter moons, probably Titan and uh, Europa, Io, Ganymede uh, and Callisto, the moons of Jupiter. So um, it, I think we will see some really spectacular photos next week coming from people who've got a small telescope. Now, is there anything scientific we can learn from this? Is there is there interest in the professional world in when it comes to space science, or is this just a pretty thing to see? It, it, yeah, it is. That's more or less what it is. What's great about it, of course, is that it lets folk like us talk about this sort of thing, and that um, you know, in the broader media, people will certainly be switched on to the fact that there's something interesting happening in the sky and that always draws attention to astronomy and space science it, it kind of reminds people that we live in this giant clockwork system called the solar system and it does interesting things so not really any science to come from it uh, but some i hope very nice images and perhaps a lot of news coverage as well Oh, there'll be there'll be plenty of news coverage. You know what amuses me, Fred? Though is that we get so excited about the great conjunction, which is only an optical illusion because of our perspective. Yes, that's right. But in re in reality, we're just looking at two planets that have been there all the time, and they're not even close to each other. It's just <laughs> it's just the way we're perceiving yeah. it at this particular time. That's right. And and yet and yet the world's going a bit crazy about it. It's. Uh, well, that's that, interesting, isn't but that's that. Yeah, that's the point. That, that uh, it's great when the, there is something in the sky that people want to go crazy about. We'll go with the flow, Andrew. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. I, I suppose uh, the other thing that's interesting is we can predict these things so well now. We we know when and where and how these things are all going to happen. It's all very well uh, documented and calculated. And 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 I suppose if you wanted to, you could sit down and give the date of the exact next one. Yep, 20, uh, because. <laughs> Sorry? 2060. Uh, oh, there let, you are. Let me give you a date for it. April the 7th. Um, actually, the, the next one's November 2nd, 2040, and there's one uh, April the 7th, 2060. But these are actually they're, they're just bog-standard great conjunctions. They're nowhere near as close as this one. Oh, they're just ordinary Ordinary great conjunctions, that's right. <laughs> Uh, I, I do recall one that's going back a few years now where uh, just about every planet lined up, wasn't it? Yeah, um, that's right. I remember when. Uh, it was a few years ago. Um, the next one of those, if I remember rightly, will be in 2040, uh, September 2040. I wrote about it in one of my books a while ago. Okay. Uh, and that's all five naked eyes. Yeah, I'm just thinking with the technology that will be available then, imagine, imagine the pictures because it, 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 for every 20, 10, 20 years that passes, the technology has leapt, you know, miles ahead. Yeah. And who, know, who knows what they're going to be able to photograph in, in 20 years' time. <laughs> uh, it'll, be, it'll be good. It'll be good. Yeah. yeah. It'll, be, it'll be ET giving us the bird. That's what it will be. Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> 
All right. Well, that's the 21st of December. If you've got clear skies, grab your uh, smart device or your um, optical zoom digital camera. Mine's got 40 times optical zoom. Do you think that'll help? It certainly will. Yep. Oh, if good. You, I'll have a crack. If, if it's not cloudy, we've, we've got some cloudy weather predicted as well, so we might not see anything, but we'll give it a try. That's the 21st of December, the Great Conjunction. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. This is the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. I want to shout out to a couple of patrons. Uh, these are people who have uh, put their money where our podcast is, and we really appreciate that. Uh, Daryl in South Australia and Michael in San Francisco, thank you so much for your wonderful support of our podcast. Uh, you don't know how much it means to us. Uh, we, um, we just appreciate it so much, and it, uh, it certainly is a, a nice gesture. And here's something to think about. Uh, we, we, I often uh, suggest to you that you might like to become a patron, and we've got all these package deals and all these um, subscription options available through Patreon and Supercast. But have you thought about buying a 12-month subscription as a Christmas present? Maybe maybe you've got someone who is difficult to buy for, and there are lots of people in that category. Perhaps you can offer them a, a subscription to Patreon or Supercast and uh, give them 12 months of, of Space Nuts. Uh, if you would like to do that, go to patreon.com slash space nuts or uh, to our Supercast page. All the details are on our website, but it's worth a thought and it's not overly expensive, is it? Uh, so, um, yeah, patreon.com slash space nuts or go to space nutspodcast.com for all the details. But, uh, yeah, something to think about. Now, Fred, moving on from the Great Conjunction to fast radio bursts and the flares around cool Fonzie stars. <laughs> yeah, these are not fast radio bursts. Um, these are ordinary radio Slow bursts. Radio bursts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A average radio bursts. Yeah, fast radio bursts are very specific. They're of order of milliseconds and very, very bright, and we still only have a vague idea of what causes them. Probably um, probably flares on magnetars, there you are, which are magnetised neutron stars. Never mind, that's not what we're talking about. Um, what we are talking about, though, here is something that I think astronomers have suspected for a long time. And it relates to the commonest form of stars that there are in our galaxy. Uh, and that is something called uh, M dwarf stars, um, which you can think of as things significantly smaller and cooler than our sun, uh, which of course uh, radiate less intense um, you know, radiation because they're not as big, so they're not shining as brightly. Uh, and um, the, the key thing here is that they make up something like 70% of all the stars in our galaxy. Uh, so they are really, really prolific. And in fact, the nearest star to us, Proxima Centauri, which is part of the Alpha Centauri system, uh, 4.2 light years away, that is an M dwarf. It's one of these stars which are the, the commonest in the galaxy. Um, so people have suspected that whilst we've detected many planets around M dwarfs, because they're actually easier to find around an M dwarf because this parent star is not you know, blinding you with its own brilliance, um, even though we, we know lots of planets around M dwarf stars, they might be 
not in a good place because uh, it has been known for a long time that M dwarf stars have quite bright flares, stellar flares, which send copious quantities of subatomic radiation out into their vicinity. Uh, and that's, you know, the suspicion has been this might be bad for any kind of life forms evolving on a planet around one of these M dwarf stars. And that's a good point, which in a sense has now been confirmed because what has happened is that astronomers, uh, and some of them are based uh, here in Australia, uh, they have detected that a sort of radio burst signature, which you me measure with a radio telescope, actually is telling you about flares. These things are... The radio bursts are something you can monitor, uh, and what it's doing is telling you about literally about the space weather around one of these stars, or, or actually any star in the solar system. Uh, sorry, outside the solar system, any star in our galaxy, but uh, which uh, you know, which most commonly are M dwarf stars. So we've got the wherewithal to measure their their radiation which we didn't have before. Uh, that is the good news. The bad news is, yeah, it's not so good. Uh, there are lots of them. Very intense blasts of plasma coming from these stars, which might well be a very bad thing for any life forms on planets around them. And the, 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 the research on this, which, by the way, does have a strong Australian content, CSIRO, uh, the University of Western Australia, Curtin University, they're all uh, in Australia, and uh, University of Colorado and University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, which is not in Australia. Uh, no. <laughs> And also, I it's think where, it's 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 where the it's where the cheese heads live. <laughs> I'm not going to make any comment on that. Just to move on to say that there's also a contribution from the University of California, Berkeley. There you go. <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't being rude. It, it, it's a term of endearment if you're a cheese head. Is it? Oh, yeah. it's, it's not one of those football things, is it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's there's nothing endearing about football, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so uh, a, a multinational collaboration, which has detected, um, you know, the fact that, yes, we're right, we might have problems with um, any kind of life forms trying to, trying to evolve on a planet of a red dwarf. And, in fact, the research points specifically to the, the two known Earth-sized planets or two suspected Earth-sized planets, which are orbiting... Uh, Proxima Centauri, they're maybe, maybe not Earth-sized, perhaps Earth-like is better because they're thought to be rocky planets, and they're thought to be within the ha habitable zone of Proxima Centauri, which is where you can get liquid water, as you know. Um, yeah, so that's that's great. You've got all that, but then you've got these horrendous solar flares being slung at you periodically from the parent star, and that's why this is not really a good news story in the quest for life beyond the solar system. Although the positive being that if these um, dwarf M-class stars exist in such massive numbers, but the proximity of the planet to the star to, to be in the habitable zone puts it too close because of solar flare activity, yeah. then we only have to look at 30% of the stars to find life, really. Uh, yes, that's right, which are 
harder to detect, <laughs> or the, plan yeah, the planets of them are harder to de to detect. Although mm. th these days, you know, um, with the the test spacecraft, uh, the former Kepler spacecraft, and the role of amateur astronomers now, who have got you know sufficiently precise. Uh, equipment with their telescopes that they can measure this tiny dip in the brightness of a star caused by a planet going past. So uh, we've got a lot to go by. So yeah, yes, I take your point. So the, the other 30% uh, are probably the place to look if you want to look for living organisms. Yeah, these um, dwarf M-class stars sound like they are probably not somewhere you'd like to be orbiting. In, yes. In terms of <laughs> In terms of planetary planetary habitation, I mean, we, we our our sun our star does the same thing, but we are far enough away for it not to be a massive issue. Although from time to time, we do have um, problems with with solar flares and and uh, coronal mass ejections. And and the big worry is that now that we are living in an, uh, a digital world and rely so much, almost a hundred percent, on electronics around the globe now. We could get an uh, electromagnetic pulse of such significance that uh, we we could find ourselves in in very big trouble in uh, in a very short period of time. Indeed, that's right. Uh, in particular, one, you know, the Carrington event, which was what in eighteen fifty nine, I think, if I remember rightly, mm. which fried all the primitive uh, electronic communications. Telegraph. Yes, that's right, the telegraph. Um, something like that would certainly upset our both our power supplies here on Earth because it it, it trips out the um, it overloads the transformers and trips out their their fail safe mechanisms, but also as you say the digital era, especially with spacecraft uh, up there above the atmosphere, they're feeling the full brunt of this. Fortunately, our sun does not chuck out uh, as horrendous solar flares as M dwarf stars do, but uh, it's uh, it's still bad enough. You know, you can get them from time to time and. Your warning is well taken. Mm. Would, would we get a warning, though, if something like that were building up? Is, is there any way of telling that it might be happening? Yes, yeah, so that's one reason why we've got such a flotilla of uh, satellites in orbit around the sun at the moment monitoring all these things. And there's a new solar telescope, a four-metre telescope, dedicated to looking at the sun, which is at uh, on the mountain Haleakala on Maui. Uh, in the Hawaiian Islands, that is also interested in understanding the way it's, it's all about magnetic fields in sunspots and things of that sort, the way these magnetic fields kind of build up and then twang and, and, and in doing that they you know as they as they release themselves from the surface, they spread these uh, high energy particles throughout space. So you can get some warning. Uh, and I think as time goes on, we'll be better equipped to do that, which is just as well, given what you've just said, that we are very vulnerable with the electronics that we use today. We should just sort of sheet everything in lead and be done with it. <laughs> Yes, that's right. <laughs> would, that, would, would that work? Uh, look, I like the steampunk solutions, and lead's one of them. There's no doubt about it. Ah, there you are. Okay. Yeah, it's good stuff, lead. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, I used to chew it off my cradle when I was a kid. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so uh, if you're thinking of moving because of COVID-19, dwarf M-class stars are probably not a good option. 
just keep that in mind. You're listening to Space Nuts, the podcast all about space science and astronomy and stuff. Uh, you're with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. This episode of Space Nuts is brought to you by LastPass, simplifying your online life. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably find one of your biggest frustrations in life is remembering all your passwords, all those login details, usernames, passwords, important information that have built up over many, many years. And, and you might have hundreds of them. I know last time I counted, I had like 88 passwords for various things and it can get quite cumbersome. So what can you do about it? Well, I use LastPass. It's a password manager. It's a fabulous solution to this problem. And believe me, the relief is unbelievable, not to mention time-saving. Uh, now, you can sign up for LastPass and you'll be joining 25.6 million fellow users from around the world and 70,000 plus businesses. With those kinds of numbers, they've got to be doing something right. And they do. In my experience, it has simplified everything. I've got every username, every password from everything I do built into LastPass. And it's, it's integrated. Uh, I can use it on my desktop. I can use it on my laptop. I can use it on my phone. I can use it on my iPad. It's that simple. And it can even work in a way whereby you don't have to type in anything. You open LastPass, you type in what you're looking for, let's say it's your Gmail account or something, and it will bring it up and you just click on the link and it will open it for you. You don't have to do anything. It is really, really good. Now, uh, you can get the premium package for around $4.50 a month and there's a family and enterprise plan as well and it works, as I said, across all devices. Uh, put your passwords in, you can go into autopilot, you can reduce the stress. It's really fabulous. Uh, I highly recommend it and it will give you peace of mind. You will never have to sit there going, oh no, I've forgotten my password. It's one of the worst feelings in the world and this is the solution. It's really simple and highly secure. I mean, it is very safe. All you have to remember is a master password, one password so that you don't have to remember any of the others. So check it out. Go to spacenutspodcast.com slash lastpass and help support the show sign up and you can check it out for free at spacenutspodcast.com slash last pass and just simplify your life link details are in the show notes and on our website now back to space nuts space nuts thanks for listening to the space nuts podcast andrew dunkley here with fred watson uh now fred uh, before we get to the audio question and the uh, the two text questions we've received yeah, well gosh we're doing three questions today holy mother what are we how are we going to handle that um uh, i just want to send a shout out to all our uh, social media supporters whether it's twitter or facebook or instagram or uh, what's another one? Pinterest. We're on Pinterest. Um, all sorts of places where you can find us. And of course, YouTube, uh, where our numbers continue to grow. And we're, we're getting a lot more feedback from the YouTube audience, um, regular questions and, and comments these days, which is fantastic. So uh, yeah, thank you all for not only following the podcast directly, 
but for uh, supporting us on our various social media platforms. And of course, uh, one of my favorite groups is the Space Nuts podcast group, which is a group that was created by Space Nuts listeners so that they could all talk to each other and, and swap ideas and answer each other's questions. It is, um, it is fantastic. One of the things that seems to be um, uh, getting a bit of momentum on the page, Fred, is this mysterious monolith that keeps popping up all over <laughs> yes. the world. Have you heard that story? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's, it sort of t it's, it turns up somewhere mysteriously, then it disappears, and then it comes up somewhere else. And now we've got people putting monoliths all over the world, uh, you know, copycats. I think that's great stuff. I like that kind of thing. And, um, it, it's somewhat meaningless, but it makes people smile, and that can only be a good thing. Uh, so thanks to all our uh, social media supporters. Now, Fred, uh, we've got a question, and this one comes from Alex in Bellingen in northern New South Wales. Hi, Andrew. This is Alex from Bellingen, New South Wales, a very, very wet Bellingen. I have a question for you and Professor Watson about neutron stars. We often read or hear statements like, a teaspoon of neutron star would weigh a billion tonnes on Earth. The actual weight quoted seems to vary, depending on the source you read, and I guess whether we're talking about a cooking measure or one of those souvenir teaspoons. Still, the main idea being to get across just how incredibly dense such objects are. But weight and mass are not the same thing, mass being an intrinsic property of matter, while weight is a measure of force and depends on the gravitational field. For example, we'd all weigh less on the moon, despite having the same mass. So I was wondering, how much would a teaspoon of neutron star weigh on the surface of a neutron star? Thanks to you both for the podcast. Very much enjoy listening. Thank you, Alex, and uh, good luck with everything up on the north coast. I've seen some of the pictures of the uh, of the devastation up there from from the tidal surges and the beach erosion and the flooding. And uh, I think there was one place yesterday recorded 952 millimetres of rain in a day, which is just an extraordinary amount of rain. I don't know what that is in the old scale in inches, but it's a massive, massive number. So uh, yeah, our thoughts are with you and everybody on the north coast, Alex. It's usually a quite beautiful place and very very popular around holiday time but uh, at the moment um yeah it's it's a little bit of a uh, a mess with all that uh, all that rain and flooding so um, fingers crossed it'll clear away very quickly now he brings up an interesting point the weight of a teaspoon of a neutron star on a neutron star compared i guess with what it would weigh here fred yeah that's right so uh, alex's point is well made the um you know uh, we th throw around the terms weight and mass uh, rather indiscriminately, but they are different. Uh, the mass is the intrinsic amount in something, uh, and the weight is what it would weigh when it's in a gravitational field. So he's quite right to separate them. And the answer's, I think, pretty interesting. Uh, so, look, he, 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 Alex also mentioned that the, the density of neutron stars seems to be a movable feast as well. Uh, but I'm reading from a, a reputable website, which is involved with nuclear power and things of that sort. Um, and the suggestion here is that a neutron star, well, if you, if you got the teaspoonful of its material, which is the normal quantity, one teaspoonful has a mass of 5.5 times 10 to the 12 kilograms. So that's five and a half trillion kilograms. Good grief. Um, that's a lot. Yeah, that, now that's its mass. Yeah. Uh, 
so you know it's it, neutron stars are the most dense things you can have because anything more dense will become a black hole it collapses uh, under its under its own mass so five and a half trillion kilograms but now you take your teaspoon and you weigh it on the surface of the neutron star because that's now the weight that you're talking about and not the mass and mm-hmm. what what it does is it it goes up uh, by another 10 to the 11 times. <laughs> so so I, I thought you were going to say, and it weighs five grams, no, you know, something. It, yeah. It's the opposite. It weighs that number. Well, uh, compared with the Earth, let me put it that way. Compared with the Earth, it's 10 to the 11 times more. Um, Gosh. So, and that's, this is, you know, calculations of, uh, typical neutron stars, surface gravity, because neutron stars are only, they've got all this mass in them, about the same as a, a star, and yet they're only 10 kilometres across. So they've got this huge density. Uh, and you're right next to it if you're on the surface. Um, you know, our the acceleration due to gravity on the Earth is 9.9 uh, metres per second squared. 9.9, nearly 10, or 9.8, I think it mm-hmm. is actually, 9.8. So it's, uh, that's, what our gravitational acceleration is. If you drop something on the surface of the Earth, that's the speed at which it accelerates, 9.8. Every, every second, it increase, speed increases by 9.8 metres per second. On a, on a neutron star, <laughs> you drop it, and every second, its speed increases by 7 times 10 to the 12 metres per second. In other words, 7 trillion metres per second. Yeah, they go very fast, uh, but not very far because the neutron star is so small. So uh, uh, Alex's point is well made. The weight of a, of a teaspoonful of matter on the surface of a neutron star is just humongous. It's yeah, very, very. I large. suppose also if, if you dropped something on a neutron star with that kind of acceleration, it would make several sonic booms before it hit the surface. <laughs> maybe, yes, maybe. If there's and uh, blow you to smithereens in the yeah, process. I, I, well, you, you look, you'd be squashed flat already because of the that yeah. gravitational field is is crippling. It's um, your your head is significantly uh, feeling more pressure downwards than your feet are, so there's not much left of you. It's not a good place to be. No, but a no. great question. A great question. <laughs> so, no, no M class dwarf star uh, occupation and neutron stars are out. We're running out of places We're, to move. We are, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, appreciate the question. Thank you, Alex. And again, uh, good luck with everything up on the north coast. Let's move on to our uh, next question. This comes from Zoe, uh, Zoe Whiteside. Um, Hey, Zoe here again. I I think I clicked onto something this week. As Santa delivers every child a present in one night, that would indicate that he can travel at the speed of light, on which would explain why he lives so long. Uh, Does this give definitive proof of Einstein's special relativity? My uh, realistic question, however, is does the influence of gravity extend out forever? Cheers. Love the podcast. Keep it up. Look, I, I've heard the Santa argument many, many times. Yes. Uh, she, she, she's put an interesting, interesting angle on it, though. I think that's really good. About him living forever, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have seen, the, um, I, have seen I, I, I haven't had time to dig this out, but there's a paper that crops up every so often about the fact, you know, if Santa Claus can deliver a present to everywhere on the earth in one night, 
what is his speed, and it certainly is relativistic. It's not necessarily at the speed of light, but getting there. Um, so the speed of light, if I remember rightly, um, and I, once again, I should be able to do the calculation in my head, but I can't. Uh, yes, I can, probably. It's about right. <laughs> the, the light, if, if, if you could make it go around the Earth, it would go around seven times in one second. So that's wow. the speed of light. So if he can travel at that speed, he, he probably could. He could just nip about all over the place. Although, you know, you've got to be at a place where the where the uh, the, the chimneys are, uh, are open and it's dark so nobody can see everybody. So you've got to do it one hemisphere at a time. Um, and uh, being able to travel at the speed of light uh, is interesting because you don't, as, as exactly as she says, photons do not experience time. They're the only things that can travel at the speed of light, but they don't experience time. And so Santa Claus wouldn't either. So that's why he's been around for so long. Now, turn, turning to the other question, <laughs> does the influence of gravity extend out forever? And the answer is yes, it does. But um, it gets very small as you get further away from it. In fact, gravity obeys what's called the inverse square law. So for every... Uh, kilometer that you move away from something with gravitation its influence drops by uh well one kilometer squared for every two kilometers it's four kilometers it drops off as the square of the distance uh but it goes it's one of these forces that uh doesn't seem to have a distance limit it just gets very very weak uh gravity is the one force that we understand least and that uh i guess is really you know we might we might discover if we find that gravity is quantized, if there's a quantum theory of gravity, we might discover that there is a minimum amount of gravity that you can have. And that would then suggest that actually there is a limit to how far gravity extends. But at the moment, we, we don't know that and we think it just goes on forever. What, what would we be able to do if we could crack it? If we could understand gravity, know what it is, how it works, everything about it, what difference would it make to us? Well, if we could, if we could do that, and maybe we could do some clever engineering that would let us uh, manipulate gravity, and then you're really interesting. You're in really interesting territory. Uh, if you can ma manipulate gravity, you can forget about launching spaceships. Uh, you just build your anti-gravity device, and off it goes. So yeah. that would be something that uh, might happen. <laughs> yeah, well that, well, that issue was very well portrayed in the movie Interstellar, where they had to res rescue the human race from a dying planet and uh, two elements to the story, finding somewhere new to live, but getting them off Earth in the meantime and having them live on a space station that you couldn't launch into space. You had to solve the problem of gravity to get off the Earth. Yes, And exactly. voila, that's, that's what that story was about. I, I love that movie. I really do. Um but uh, yeah, that 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 kind of was was the problem. So um, mm, we, can, we've still got a heck of a lot to learn, haven't we? We do. Um, um, I'm going to give a taster here, which I don't normally do. As you know, I'm working on my very first children's book, and I'm also illustrating it as well as writing the text. And when it comes out next year, you will find in it there is a. There is a diagram. It's actually a cartoon, but it's a, it shows you how to build an anti-gravity device. Ah, 
<laughs> it's right Excellent. there, right there in front of you. <laughs> you you're going to have um, lots and lots of students doing this at school and yes. sending you their um, their pictures. Yeah, I reckon. Maybe so. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you, Zoe. Great question. Uh, good discussion. And I'm sure in the years to come we will get the um, the paper on Santa Claus's speed over and over again. Let's move on to a question from Travis Bell. Hi, Travis. Hey, guys. Uh, love the show. How can a black hole have different amounts of mass if the singular, uh, singularity has infinite de uh, density? Uh, can't get my head around this. Travis, can anyone get their head around it? Uh, yes. Well, mathematically you can because it's a very easy you know, the answer well, you know, straightforward. There's, there's the stumbling block straight up for me. <laughs> oh, no, you, you'll get this. Okay, so uh, what everything that Travis says is right. Uh, black holes have different amounts of mass. Uh, they have infinite density. That's actually the definition of a black hole. It is a point in space of infinite density. And he also mentions a singularity, which is what this is. It's a single point in space with infinite density. Okay, so density is mass over volume. That's the mathematics. Um, now, if you think about that little equation, density has got to be infinite. And the reason why it's infinite is because the volume on the bottom line is zero. It is a point of no dimensions. So the volume of your black hole is zero. And that means it doesn't matter what the mass is. You can put any mass you like on the top line of the equation. You're still going to get an infinite density because the volume's zero. So that's why you can have. Did you? Did you get that? Yeah. Hey. <laughs> yeah. That's why you can have um, you, you can have different masses of black holes, and you can measure the different mass. You know, by a number of methods usually involving how fast things are going around the black hole <clears throat> but um but the the volume is always zero and because that's what defines a black hole <clears throat> I, i've come a long way since year seven which is for uh, those in america uh, junior high i've come a long way since my three times naught equals three answer my first test in the maths <laughs> class I got tricked. There's a trick question, and everyone, just about everyone, falls for that one. Yeah. Well, you didn't, probably, Fred, but I did. Because I, I don't concentrate. My problem is I just don't think. <laughs> I don't pre-read the questions. I just go, oh, that's close enough. Yeah, yes. she'll, she'll be right. All right. Yep. <laughs> that's the that's the attitude, yes. and it never was. You know, it never no, was in maths. No. It was never right. Oh dear. All right, Travis, thanks so much for uh, your question. Appreciate it. Thanks to everybody who contributed um, this week. And uh, if you do want to send in questions, you can do that via our website, spacenutspodcast.com. You can either send them through the email interface as a text, or you can record them via the AMA tab and check out the Space Nuts shop while you're there and maybe pick up a nice Prezi for Christmas for yourself or someone else or for uh, every person on the planet. That'd be really good if you could do that. Um, but maybe just, you know, one mug at, at a time. Um, not talking about us, Fred. Well, maybe we are. But anyway, um, thanks for your support. And uh, we, we, we will be back next week, Fred. I think we're going to do a, um, a, a Christmas edition. Why not? It sounds good. Christmas edition, we can report on the conjunction, whether anybody actually saw it through the clouds and <clears throat> and do a few questions as well while we're at it. How's that? Well, if there are clear skies here, I'll do my level best to get a photo of it. Yeah, that would be good. But um, mm. we'll see how it goes. Thanks, Fred. Always good to talk. We'll catch you next time. Sounds great. See you soon. 
Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again. We'll talk to you again real soon. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.